James Gould, and you guys are listening to The Recess Course. Today on The Recess Course, we have with us Nancy Murphy, who is one of our local toxicologists. And Nancy is here today to help us talk about toxic alcohols. Toxic alcohols can be a really sneaky, sick, toxic ingestion. And they can be missed. So, you know, these are patients that we could see found down or they've taken an ingestion and they're not forthcoming for whatever reason. And they have the potential to do very poorly if they're not recognized and treated. So Nancy Murphy has a a special passion for toxic alcohols. Um, She's a great speaker on the topic of toxic alcohols, really all all things toxicology. Uh, In way of introduction, she has so many degrees here. It's going to take us a little while to get through them all, but she is the associate professor in the Department of, of Emergency Medicine here at Dalhousie. She is a fellow of the American College of Medical Toxicology, having completed her training in San Francisco. She's the medical director at the Atlantic Canadian Poison Center here in Halifax, serving all of Atlantic Canada. And she's certified additionally in addictions medicine by the American Board and Canadian Society of Addictions Medicine. She's also a medical communications center physician with EHS. Nancy, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Did I miss anything there? No, I think that's it. (laughs) Wow. Holy moly. Okay. Uh, So Nancy, we're going to get right into a case and um, uh, you basically will just run through it and then we'll talk back and forth about how we would manage it and uh, let's get going. So this is a 40 year old guy. He's found in his garage altered heart rate of 110 blood pressure of 120 on 80, saturations of 95% on 2 liters, and his GCS is currently 12. That's an E3, V4, M5. His labs show a normal CBC, electrolytes, renal function, and a blood gas comes back that shows a pH of 7.1, a bicarb of 7, a CO2 of 20, and a lactate of 9. So, obviously, metabolically, and based on these labs and appearance, this guy is sick. Nancy, what are your immediate thoughts just on hearing that case? Uh, well, certainly this is suspicious for toxic alcohol. Um, found in garage, altered with a severe metabolic acidosis. But of course, we'll do due diligence and consider all other causes, whether medical or toxicologic. But in this case, I'm, let's stick to the toxicologic differential and consider we have a patient who's altered, who's requiring O2. So any CNS depressants could be a contributing factor, opioids, benzos, antipsychotics. All these co-ingestants are common in these scenarios as well, even if it is a toxic alcohol. Um, It could be postictal from a tox seizure and have an acidosis due to that, given the high lactate. It could be hypoglycemic from an ingestion. And of course, he's in a garage, so carbon monoxide poisoning is a possibility because it can cause altered LOC and a metabolic acidosis. Uh, so actually, he should be put on 100% O2 by non-rebreather until that's ruled out. Um, and other toxins that can cause an acidosis, of course, your mud piles, mnemonic, you know, cyanide, metformin, salicylates, iron, isoniazid, and things like alcoholic ketoacidosis as well. So this patient has a severe metabolic acidosis with a bicarb that's in the single digits. And that's one of the things that I often... Like I can be heard saying to <laughs> residents, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of, th- you know, there really is a narrower differential for uh, anything that can cause a bicarb in the single digits without the patient being essentially peri-arrest, right? This guy isn't peri-arrest, and yet his numbers are completely out of whack. 
Um, and so uh, with this severe metabolic disturbance, the other thing uh, we have to consider, given his altered uh, mental status and hypoxia, is that uh, if we have to consider airway management urgently, we're going to use a different approach, which we can always get into later. Um, but in this case, uh, the severe acidosis in terms of single-digit bicarb, there are only a handful of things. So uh, mm. DKA or AKA can cause that. If, you know, do, you, know you, you check uh, the ketones and sort of immediately mm. know one way or the other. Um, and toxic alcohols that is fairly late in presentation so that accumulation of toxic metabolites has already happened. And of late, a new... A uh, new thing on the list is uh, massive acetaminophen ingestion, which can present with altered mental status and severe acidosis in the single digits. Um, so that's sort of, those are my initial thoughts on that case. That's such a great pearl. And I do remember you driving that into my head when I was a resident. I've learned most everything that I know about toxicology from you and the single digit bicarb um, pearl really sticks out in my head. And so to summarize, single-digit bicarbs in a patient who's not peri-arrest, or I guess better said, a patient who's relatively well compared to their blood gas, you really should be considering a select number of diagnoses, so DKA, AKA, massive Tylenol ingestion, and toxic alcohols. And if you consider those sort of four things, you've really um, you've covered the majority, if not almost all, of the things that would cause that particular presentation with that particular blood gas. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. And I would also add that, you know, not everybody may get uh, a gas right off the bat either, but they will get mm. chemistry. And one of the things I've no noted over the years is that sometimes these cases can be missed because people aren't looking at the chemistry, specifically the total CO2, which is bicarb, um, and calculating an anion gas. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. A majority of these patients get at least a routine blood work sent off, at least in our department, and the TCO2 is part of that. So so sort of a screening, or at least in the patient that you haven't initially thought about doing a blood gas in, um, a, a method by which to sort of flag further consideration of toxic alcohols. Exactly. This is... Um, this is a presentation and the blood gas is already there. So you kind of are already thinking along the lines of toxic alcohols, but you know, there's obviously going to be situations where the patients may look different. Is there a presentation of toxic alcohols that um, is typical or does that depend on the time of ingestion and how long since the patients ingested the toxic alcohols? Yeah. So initially uh, when there aren't a lot of accumulation of, there isn't a lot of accumulation of, uh, toxic metabolites in the acidosis. Patients may just be slightly inebriated or relatively asymptomatic uh, when they have sort of that high osmol gap stage of illness. Um, and then over time, uh, with accumulation of the toxic metabolites, that's when things change and they can become tachypnic, have altered LOC. Uh, and certainly in the case of ethylene glycol toxicity, it can actually become encephalopathic, delirious, confused, agitated. And so it can, it, it, the spectrum is directly related to how 
delayed they are in their presentation. So the longer you wait, the sicker you get because of these accumulated toxins. Mm, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, what other investigations would you do? So, you know, this patient's had routines and a blood gas. Anything else that you'd draw off? Well, I guess we were sort of looking at the lactate. So uh, just getting to that, the lactate is elevated in this case, but uh, specific to toxic alcohols or specific to ethylene glycol uh, is sometimes there can be, um, the, the lactate on a gas isn't accurate. It can be a cross-reaction with the metabolite glycolic acid. Um, there are lots of things that can cross-react with lactate on a gas, so you, you do have to pay attention to that. If, it's, if the lactate seems excessively high, uh, then do a venous lactate, uh, which is done on a different machine. And if there's a big difference between those two, then that's a lactate gap, which signifies a cross-reaction with lactate on the blood gas assay. Uh, and it is somewhat helpful in supporting the diagnosis of ethylene glycol toxicity. Just to expand there on what Nancy is talking about, there are different assays that are used in our labs to determine lactate in samples. Um, there is one particular assay that uses lactate oxidase that will misinterpret glycolate, which is a byproduct of glycolic acid or ethylene glycol metabolism. It'll mistake that for lactate. Other assays do not do that. So if you have two different assays available in the lab and both of them are run, you'll see that if there is a gap between the two lactate measurements, then the difference between the two may be due to the presence of glycolic acid or a surrogate marker for the presence of ethylene glycol toxicity. Um, as far as other investigations, obviously an ECG, um, carb carboxyhemoglobin level, a CK, because these patients can have a downtime that would result in rhabdo, uh, screening for co-ingestants, so acetaminophen ASA levels, uh, other drug levels, depending on maybe what they had access to or what their, what their prescriptions are. And of course, an ethanol level, because uh, if you are considering toxic alcohols, ethanol can be protective if they happen to have alcohol with their ingestion. Um, and it can also, well, you need it to calculate the osmol gap anyway. Hmm. And a glucose, obviously, would be important as well. So it sounds like the investigations are really aimed at, um, you know, further characterizing the potential of a toxic alcohol, but also kind of targeting alternative diagnoses and making sure that, uh, that we aren't missing something different here. Uh, and what, can you talk a little bit more about the osm gap? What goes into calculating it? And then what the role of the osm gap and anion gap is in determining whether the patient has ingested a toxic alcohol? Yeah, there's a lot of confusion around this. Uh, so, well, the osm gap is calculated uh, by two, as I was told by some medical students, two salts and a sugar bun <laughs> uh, plus alcohol. So uh, the you double the sodium, you add BUN glucose, and then uh, the ethanol levels multiplied by a factor of 1.25. Uh, and then you basically take that number and subtract, or you take this, the measured serum osmolality done by the lab and subtract the, what you've calculated, and that would be the osm gap. And it's typically quoted as being normal if less than 10, but there's a great range of normal when it comes to osm gaps. 
none of us know what our baseline osmol gap is, um, mm-hmm. but it can range from minus 14 to plus 14. So, you know, saying less than 10 is normal is a bit simplistic, uh, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a reasonable sort of number to consider, but there, it's, a, it's more nuanced than that. Early on in ingestion, if I drank a gallon of antifreeze and you tested my blood, you know, an hour later, I'd have a large osm gap and no anion gap. Conversely, if I presented tomorrow, uh, I would have a huge anion gap, but no osm gap, or very little. And then there's everything in between, and it all has to do with time since ingestion. What Nancy is referring to here is the concept that all alcohols are converted into aldehydes, uh, which are then converted into acids. So initially, what you're going to have is a really elevated osm gap because the osmolality is driven by those things that are in the blood like alcohol. And the anion gap, as we know, is driven by the presence of the acid. So over time, as that alcohol becomes metabolized through an aldehyde to an acid, we get that transfer from an osm gap to an elevated anion gap. So I've had, uh, you know, clinicians say, well, there's no osm gap, therefore it can't be a toxic alcohol. Untrue. So essentially, if you have done some blood work (laughs) and there's either a little bit of an anion gap, a little bit of an osmol gap, or both, and you don't really know what to do with that, well, that's when you should call the poison center. We deal with a ton more cases of this than any one given clinician in their daily practice. And so we're used to all the nuances and, and differences. Um, there are also limitations to, to interpretate, interpreting these gaps. I mean, the anion gap can be elevated for a lot of non-tox reasons. The osm gap can be slightly elevated due to a patient being sick NYD, you know, I mean, if you measure, if you did a, you know, an osm gap in a diabetic patient in DKA, they would have an osm gap. Mm. There are lots of unmeasurable osmotically active substances in somebody who's sick. It's a, it seems like a really tough one, Nancy, because it, what, what it sounds like we're saying is if there's a really elevated osm gap, it could be due to other things. And if they have, by the textbook, a normal osm gap, they could actually have at baseline uh, quite a negative osm gap and so that might actually the osm gap of eight or nine in that patient that's presenting to the emergency department that gap may actually represent a significant elevation from their baseline um so i i mean it sounds like the osm gap is is almost uh almost non-contributory is that is that fair to say or can you speak to that yeah so it's it's certainly we it's actually very helpful once you know what the limitations are, though. And the sure. other thing about it is uh, it can trigger, um, you know, initiating treatment and getting a confirmatory level. Mm. Uh, and, and that just takes time. But essentially, um, the, big, the, the, the big challenge is that somebody sees, some, you know, that a patient has a bit of an osmol gap let's say, in somebody who, who doesn't turn out to have a toxic alcohol ingestion. Uh, if they're not that sick, you, you have time to figure this out. I think that's right. the people sort of jump to, you know, giving fomepazole in somebody who's not that sick. 
um, who doesn't you really have much of an acidosis. Just mm. know that you have a little bit of time to make a judgment call on that. And often what we'll do is if the diagnosis is not, is not clear and you might, you know, you know, have some slight elevation in anion gap or osm gap or both, then serial blood work is an acceptable uh, approach. Again, you should probably talk to us first, but mm. um, that is a definite sort of uh, accepted approach. You can't do serial blood work if you've given fomepazole, though. So that's, a, that's something you have to be quite aware of. So the fork in the road is if you have somebody that you're considering a toxic alcohol ingestion in and you decide to give fomepazole, then you're committed to um, getting, a to- getting an actual level, which can take, depending on where you're practicing, a day or two or three hours, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, but if, you, if, you are, if the diagnosis is not super clear, the patient's not that sick, serial blood work if you haven't given fomepazole. Because fomepazole blocks any metabolism of the toxic alcohol. So serial blood work is meaningless because it's not going to change, or it's not going to change very much over many, many hours. Right. So you just have to be, you know, if you give fomepazole, you're committed, do a level, keep giving the fomepazole. If you don't give fomepazole, then you can kind of do the serial blood work and sort things out that way. If you have an awesome gap of, uh, let's say, between 10 and 20, that's, that's the gray area, typically. Um, greater than 50 awesome gap, that's pretty much diagnostic of a toxic alcohol. Sure. <laughs> but anything wow. between 10 and 50 is sort of, you know, uh, a little more uh, nuanced. Yeah, it could be other stuff. And so the things that you'd be doing, so let's say you got one that's elevated and um, they've got a slight anion gap. They've got an osm gap at 25 uh, altered. Um, additional things you'd be doing would be like a ketones to see whether or not this might be a presentation of diabetic ketoacidosis or alcoholic ketoacidosis. In, in the absence of, of those things, in the absence of renal failure, in the absence, I guess I'm saying, of an alternative diagnosis, that osm gap that's elevated between 10 and 50 um, is that fairly diagnostic then for toxic alcohol? I guess I guess what I'm saying is in the absence of a of a clear alternative cause, um, should you err on the side of assuming this is a toxic alcohol and giving fomepazole? In general, yes. Like there's certainly like fomepazole itself, despite the thousand dollar price tag, uh, you know, I don't really think that's a factor in making decisions. Um, I think that. You giving a one dose of fomepazole buys you 12 hours of time to sort things out too mm. uh, and is minimally toxic as far as like adverse events maybe some nausea uh, you know there's very little that um, goes wrong with giving a, a dose of fomepazole it's just to be you know the reason I bring it up is as far as like you just have to know what you're committing to that's yeah. all yeah. It's not wrong to give it early on. It's not wrong to give it if you suspect toxic alcohol, but don't start doing serial blood work after you give it. That's all. Yeah, it's a good pearl. Um, I guess just more broadly, indications for giving fomepazole, we, we targeted sort of this patient particularly, and I think that it, you know, it's fairly clear this is a toxic alcohol, but do you have a list of people that you would give fomepazole to? Like if you were to break it down into these are the select people that I would absolutely give it to? Yeah, so I guess if the history is really clear of an acute ingestion, patient says, 
I drank antifreeze. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're found with an empty jug of antifreeze or, you know, uh, windshield wiper fluid. Um, that's, I mean, I would say treat. Yeah. Um, if, if you uh, suck out a bunch of bright green or bright pink or bright blue material from an NG tube in the right history, then yes, you know, that's fairly diagnostic are fairly suspicious uh if they have a, a really large osmol gap um or if they have an established acidosis with again your single digit bicarb um those are sort of the the no-brainer ones but also you have to kind of realize that omeprazole only prevents metabolism of any parent compound that's left so if you have somebody with an osm gap of you know eight or nine and a you know, a bicarb of two with a low pH, you know, Fomepazole is not the, the treatment that's going to save them at that point. You still give it. Yeah. But what's urgent is dialysis, not giving Fomepazole at that stage. Uh, so Fomepazole would just be sort of, if there's any residual parent compound, it's going to block metabolism. But the real problem is the acidosis and the intervention for that is dialysis. Uh, that's such a great pearl. All of the all of the parent compound is metabolized. That's and that's why we're seeing such a profound acidosis in the absence of a significant osm gap. Um, well, what about the dose? Just quickly, we'll we'll touch on what dose of fomepazole that you give, um, and then at what intervals. So fomepazole is fifteen milligrams per kilogram as an initial dose, and then and and you only have to give that every twelve hours, uh, as long as you're not doing dialysis. Uh, because if you do dialysis, you have to give it every four hours because you're dialyzing off the fomepazole. In eMERGE, that's really all you need to know because hopefully they're not going to be in the department. <laughs> you and for... I both know that's <laughs> That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> um, so yeah, the initial dose is 15 milligrams per kilogram over 30 minutes. Maintenance doses, 10 milligrams per kilogram for the following handful of doses. It induces yeah. its own metabolism, so you have to crank up the dose again a bit later. But again, they sh if they're still in the, in the emergency department two days, three days later when that happens, then we're in real trouble for overcrowding. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we don't have to generally worry about uh, you know increasing the dose after auto-induction of its own metabolism. So don't worry too much about that. Just be aware that that does happen. Sometimes we are dialyzing people in our department if there's no space in ICU. So uh, it is important to know to increase the frequency of dosing during dialysis of fomepazole. And we have a protocol for that through the poison center. Yeah, that's awesome. Nancy, we, we kind of already touched on this, but I really want to hammer down uh, the point of, of dialysis, the indications for dialysis, because, um, you know, we've both experienced this uh, through the talk center in terms of it being difficult uh, at times to convince uh, people that the right thing to do for these patients is dialysis. Um, and I think part of it is that we work in a world and we practice in a way that we make this diagnosis in the absence of a level. And sometimes you make the diagnosis with uh, an unclear history. And just based on things we've ruled out as alternative diagnosis, we are only left with the potential for toxic alcohol. And so we often need to make the decision 
of indication for dialysis without a level back. And I feel like maybe on the other end, people are a bit more uncomfortable with that. Um, so can you speak to that and just in, in general, who you dialyze? If you want to look up the, uh, the current evidence-based recommendations for dialysis in toxic overdoses, uh, the XTRIP guidelines are available. They're open access. Just Google XTRIP, E-X-T-R-I-P. And uh, there are multiple recommendations. There's, they're working on one for ethylene glycol right now. The methanol one has been up for ages. But in terms of speaking to, uh, you know, convincing a nephrologist to dialyze, um, if you can present the XTRIP guidelines uh, because they're endorsed and developed by nephrologists, that may help uh, kind of support your uh, argument. Uh, but in general, uh, if you have, you feel comfortable that you've ruled out alternate causes and you have a convincing kind of clinical scenario, you advocate for the patient and you sort of challenge the nephrologist who may not be willing to dialyze unless they have a level. Uh, essentially, if they already have an acidosis, you know, time is nephron. So, uh, they, the patient's kidneys will deteriorate if they have an existing uh, acidosis. That time is of the essence, and if and if you don't, if there's a delay in diagnose or delay in in treat definitive treatment in those patients with an established acidosis, specifically, these patients can go on to develop uh, renal failure, requiring several weeks to months of dialysis. And it ultimately may not be reversible, but often reversible, but just several months of treatment of dialysis as an outpatient. And that's a huge cost to the system and to the patient, right? I mean, uh, yeah. so, so this is what we see after the fact that as emergency physicians, you may not be as aware of, but certainly through the poison center, as we do follow up or ultimate outcome of these patients, this is what happens. Yeah. You know, ask them what other diagnosis they could could consider in this case. You know, ask them what they think could be causing this other than toxic alcohols, and that might kind of crystallize it for them. Yeah. Uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> I love that uh, time is nephron. That would get any nephrologist <laughs> excited. I think, eh? Exactly. You <laughs> speak their language, and it will help you. <laughs> I think that that's it from my end. Anything else we missed, Nancy? Just sometimes people ask about, um, you know, what other treatments. So cofactors like thiamine, pyridoxine, folic acid, those agents are to facilitate conversion of toxic metabolites to non-toxic substances. So if you have somebody with an acidosis who's, let's say, awaiting dialysis, like say they're at another center and they're getting transferred to, you know, to a hemodialysis-capable center, um, you can certainly start those to offer some protection against the uh, met metabolic, uh, or sorry, the toxic metabolites. It's not clear that this changes outcome, but it's simple, non-toxic, and cheap. And so we generally recommend those. Thank you very much, Dr. Nancy Murphy, for being on the show. You're a wealth of knowledge, and we'll have you back very soon to talk about antidepressants or anything else that uh, you'd like to talk about about toxicology i can listen to you all day thanks james
This is a great course. I'm really excited to be part of it. All right. Bye-bye. Toxic alcohols are a tricky diagnosis to make sometimes. These patients can be found down. They can be brought into the emergency department as suicide attempts and not forthcoming about the ingestion that they've taken. And we need to be really careful about identifying these because there's some pretty specific treatments. In summary, remember, toxic alcohols are all metabolized from alcohol to aldehyde to acid. And we see that in the blood work as a transition from that elevated osmolar gap to an elevated anion gap. In order to treat these, we're trying to block that conversion from alcohols. And the medication that we use for that is Femepazole. The dosing, 15 milligrams per kilogram IV, and the dosing interval changes, but we'll worry less about that because hopefully they're no longer in the emergency department. So when are we going to give Femepazole? Well, first, if the history is in keeping with it, the patient's told you that that's what they've taken or they're found down with a jug of something that contains a toxic alcohol, then that one's pretty easy. The harder ones are the ones that present with a significant elevation in their anion gap or osmolar gap, depending on the time period by which they present. One of the big keys here is remembering that single-digit bicarbs only happen in a select number of situations, toxic alcohol ingestion being one of them, DKA, alcoholic ketoacidosis. If these patients have already converted all of their alcohol to an acid, then what they need is dialysis. Typical indications for dialysis in a toxic alcohol would be acidosis, significant anion gap elevation greater than 24, and signs of end-organ damage, so your brain, your kidneys. Finally, there are cofactors that can help convert these toxic metabolites into less toxic things, and those are thiamine and pyridoxine in ethylene glycol toxicity and folic acid in methanol toxicity. And that's it for Toxic Alcohols. If you like this podcast, head on over to theresuscourse.com to check out all the other Resus-related free open access content. I'm James Gould, and thanks for listening to The Resus Course.